Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 203. This uh, program is dedicated in loving memory of Rivka Farkash, who passed tragically away today at a young age on the 10th of other, a sister of our dear colleague Velva Farkash. Our heart and prayers and condolences go out to him and his entire family. Also a memory of uh, Rashi, Minkowitz, upon the fourth anniversary, the fourth Yotzeit, also on the 10th of Adar. May the words we share here, may the effect it has on all of us, stand them in good merit, and may they stand us in good merit as well. It's also a good opportunity to mention that uh, My Life City Supplied, as you know, is a uh, community-sponsored initiative. It's a free public service that we, the Meaningful Life Center, offers a lot of work, a lot of hours of research, and the preparation goes into this, and really dependent completely on your support. So please help us and sponsor programs or any type of donation of any amount. Simply go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship, and you can dedicate a program and uh, support us and help us in any possible way. This is the week of Purim. And, uh, of course, we'll talk about that. This Thursday is Purim. It comes with Tainas Sester before Purim, and Shushim Purim on Friday. But before we get to that, I wanted to say the judges are heavy-duty, uh, committed in evaluating the hundreds and hundreds of essays that have been submitted in this year's fourth annual My Life Citizen Applied Essay Contest. So just keeping you posted that we're working hard on it. And uh, every word that you have committed to writing is being respected and uh, treated the proper way to really evaluate and come away with the best essays, even though, as I always say, every essay is a winner. Simply the effort, the hours and hours, and I respect, I want to acknowledge the hours and hours of effort that each one of you who submitted an essay has invested in it. So from that point of view, it's a winner for you, for the world, and for all of us, taking an idea in Chassidus and applying it to a contemporary issue. And we will keep you posted as things go along in the next weeks as we get closer to announcing the finalists and the final winners in this year's contest, including the special student track for students exclusively for students. We're especially excited about that. So to get to Purim, now, Purim, I've talked about a number of times, just to cross-reference in the past. I've talked about it in episode 58, 108, and 154. And here's an opportunity to mention all the archives and all the cross-referencing that I do can all be accessed at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. There you have the archives. You have uh, the forum where you can submit an anonymous question or comment, as well as a possibility to do a sponsorship, as I mentioned, and as well as the essays of the previous year's contest. So it's a rich array, a resource that you can really make use of. I've mentioned a number of times that all the programs are time-stamped. So when you go to the YouTube link of each program, it's time-stamped in the description where you can just jump straight to the topic just by clicking on the name. And there's a, uh, exactly what, what time, what minute, what minute it appears in the, in the program, and you can just click on it and go straight there. Okay, so because we spoke about Purim in different angles, two questions, two questions actually came in, so I'll, I'll approach the Purim, so many different angles to approach. We'll do it through these two questions. 
One question is like this. What is the explanation according to Chassidus as to how Esther was allowed to be married to Achishverosh? So of course the famous question, the Gemara talks about it, and the Mepharshim, the commentaries talk about it. Esther was of course Jewish. She was a niece, and the Gemara explains she was even married to Mordechai, a cousin, depending on the different opinions. She was married to Mordechai. So first of all, how could she be go ahead and have go to Achishverosh to another person? Secondly, Achishverosh is non-Jewish. So in all questions, the questionable relationship, the whole thing seems odd that Esther should be able to have, what, what allowed her to do that? So the Gemara answers in Megillah Daftas Vov, and different commentaries cited. You can also look in Sanhedrin, Ayin Dalad, Omer Aleph, and Tesfiz there. So what are the Gemara answers that this was not her choice. It was Exeda, which means Achashverosh was looking for a wife, and no one could just avoid that. That was been the penalty of death. And it was not willing. So even though a person has to be Moisir Nefesh on the Gimel Dvarim of Yarek Val Yavir, which includes murder, sexual inappropriate behavior, adultery, and Shvichas uh, Dom, and Aved uh, here, so you could say, well, so she should have given her life before, but that was, that's when somebody willingly does it. But if someone, if someone imposes it upon you, it's, an, it's not something you did. You did it under duress. And therefore, she was not responsible. But then we find there's a problem because once we find when Mordechai tells Esther to go approach Achishverosh, and then there's already the question, the question comes, then how, does, how, how do you work with that? That she does willingly. So there's the famous answer from the Nadi Yehuda and as well as brought um, another interesting, in the I'll give you the exact market, Tinyana, Yere Deya 161, Kufsama Chalaf, and in Charles Shuvis Marik, Kufsama Zayin 167. And they answer that Yaragva Yaver is when you, when, when it's about an individual. In other words, if someone says to you, murder someone else and I'll save your life, you're not allowed to. If someone says, do something here sexually inappropriate and you'll uh, save your life, you're not allowed to. But if it's to save Klal Yisrael, there it's a difference. So yes, she may have been compromised as the Gemara explains the details, but nevertheless, because she was saving Klal Yisrael, this entire Jewish people, that was the mysterious nefesh that she had. And that's why how you explain even her so-called willingness, but her willingness. Her willingness was not to have a relationship with Achshverosh. Her willingness was to sacrifice herself in order to get what she wanted was the bittle of the Gzeda of Haman to save the Jewish people. But the question still begs, as the questioner asks, why did God set it up in such a way that it has to be done in such, a, such a, an un, un, um, uh, unbecoming way, to put it mildly? It's true, we needed, we needed different miracles, but this Esther has to put herself in such an um, undignified way, compromise herself. In this fashion, why did it have to be done that way? So I haven't seen explicitly an answer in Chassidus, but based on the concept that Esther, that Esther, which the Gemara says, Esther, how do you know her from Teda? So it says, Haster, Aster, Panay. When God says, I've covered and I will conceal my face, a double concealment. And from there we learn Esther. So Chassidus explains, what's the connection? The connection is because Esther, <coughs> Excuse me. 
Esther, of course, the heroine and the main character in the Megillah, and to the point the Megillah is called on her name, Megillah Esther, is connected to Hester to concealment. Chassidus talks about Malchus Shoshana, which is Esther, that she's, it's a concealment, it's like the Levona conceals the light. It doesn't have any light of its own. That's reflected in the story of Purim, as opposed to other stories like the story of Hanukkah or the story of Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, of Pesach, or other miracles. They were obvious revealed miracles. The time when the Eden were under the control of Achashverosh, the 127 countries, Medinas, that he controlled, was a time of Golas. It was the time between Bayez Rishon and Bayez Sheni, a time of Golas after the Chorim Bayez the first place of Midrash. So it's a time of Chel and Behester, Golas. And the Gzeda itself, the whole story of Purim until it's turned around, was a darkness within darkness. Literally genocide of the entire Jewish people and the plot and conspiracy of Haman. So Esther represents the Hastir Astir, the Hester Ponim, the concealment of the divine. And the miracle, even the miracle happens through, so to speak, Melubish Beteva dressed up in nature. You don't see any obvious miracle that suspends the laws of nature. You see Archeshveresh ruled, and then by, by, because he, Vashti fell out of favor, he happened to kill her. Mordechai happened to overhear the conspiracy against Archeshveresh's life. Archeshveresh happened to be looking for a new wife. Esther is the person he chooses. Everything is set up that with a period of seven, nine years, that put him, you connect the dots, especially in retrospect, you see a miracle. But it's all through a Hester Ponim. You don't see Hashem's name in the Tar Megillah for this reason, because you don't see God's hand in a revealed way. It's all in a concealed way. And that's all captured in the name Esther from the word Hastir Hastir. So therefore, in her, in her way of saving the Eden, it was not like Moshe Rabbeinu, for example, Mitzrayim, they came with his with Biat Chazok, with a strong hand, and with God's clearly sending him as a messenger, and he had to, and he prevailed over Pari. Here, everything was done in a dark way. That sometimes the Birurim, this explains, you have to be able to refine something. Sometimes you can do it, Lamata, which means you bring shine a great light from above, and you elevate the sparks. But sometimes you have to go, you have to go, you have to be is the language of Chassidus. You have to dress up in the garments of the thing you need to refine. And because this was the refinement of the darkness of that period, and the darkness of the, of, of the, of the Gzeda and all that was going on then, you need Esther to also, it's like the Shama Mislabish Beguv, the Shama is dressed up in a body, and in all the darkness of this world, including her being subject to the indignity of being having to submit to Achashverosh, uh, and all that happened with that. And Dafka through that hell and Vacheshach, from that comes a refinement that's even deeper than the refinement that comes from above. So that's why it was set up in that fashion, because it teaches us a lesson as well, that there are times where we expect a miracle to come from a higher place and things are not going well, and you pray, you beg God, and God sends a miracle. But there are times where we may be in a situation where we don't see miracles, we don't see the obvious revelation, we don't see the obvious salvation. And yet we should know, even in the darkness, God is there with us. Even in the tzimtzum, in the darkest of dark, there's the keich there's the divine power that creates That is also part of God's plan. But it's a very different way of revealing it. It's revealing it within the darkness. That even though it's that darkness, Esther's concealed, and concealed to the extent that she has to leave Mordechai and leave her Jewish upbringing and Jewish background and go into the lion's den, so to speak, 
and firstly, be against her will, as the Gemara says, under duress, Achashverosh came onto her. Then, not even, even, and even further, she had to do it willingly because this was the only way to save the Eden. This was a sign of how you transform you go into the darkest of dark with all these negatives and you transform that that the month becomes a transformative month and the Purim becomes a transformative day that teaching us the power to transform even the darkest. Now, this is not a license for anybody to behave that way. In that case, it was clearly coming from Mordechai, from Esther. They were both Nevi'im and Nevi'es, a Novi, so they knew what they had to do. And it was Takelech Ha'ira but the justification I explained before, because either under duress or because to save Klal Yisrael. But the lesson is that sometimes we find ourselves in dark places, in situations that are compromising, not against our will, and we have to realize that that too can become a catalyst and a springboard for great, um, great salvation and great redemption, which leads to even a greater joy, Adaliyada, to the point that you can't even distinguish between dark and light because the darkness has been completely transformed. How could you compare the two? Not to know the distinction between the curse of that Haman is cursed and Mordechai is blessed. So Chassidus explains it's not that the curse of Haman is equal to the blessing of Mordechai. It's that the place that you reach is a place that's higher than the structure of good and evil and light and dark because you get to a point where you have the etzim itself, the essence itself that comes specifically from this mamatul mila from below up. That work that comes from a Hester and Aster Hester Esther Minatei and Hester Aster Ponai. And the applied Chassidus lessons are quite obvious because each of us deal with times when we are in that Esther state. And even that becomes not just the source of salvation, but the whole Megillah is named after her, even though Mordechai was a key person as well. But it's all named after the Hester because it's in that concealment that you have the miracle, the place where God's name is not mentioned explicitly. From that we transform it to being the greatest to the point that the Tukun says that Purim, you say Yem Kippurim, compares Yem Kippurim, the holiest day of the year, Kippurim, like Purim. Exodus explains how you could say such a thing. Because Purim in a certain way has, a, has an Agdus, a unity that Yem Kippur has, but you can do it through the darkness of the world. And you do it even through Suda, through physical things. Where on Yom Kippur, it's through the Heinuim, the five oppressions, the five afflictions where we avoid as much as possible this world. Purim does it through transformation. And transformation always requires entering and engaging in ways that often can be even compromising to some extent. Okay. So with that, we move, let's move to um, a question, next question. Another question about Purim is, um, someone, why, someone asked me, why do we make noise when Haman's name is mentioned? Doesn't that give him more attention? It seems as though we give him more attention than Esther, than Esther and Mordechai. Thanks, and Afrelechem Purim. Very good question. And now I'll add another question. We say, we just in Parsha Zohar yesterday, when we read the Parsha before Purim, we always read Zohar Shasha Asalacha Amalek, remember what Amalek did to you. And then we say, We should erase and double erase the Zechra, the memory of Amalek. Zohar Asherah, do we remember what he did? And not forget? Or Mocha, do you erase the memory? So one of the answers that's given, and this can also explain the story with Haman, is we're not to, we, we erase Amalek. We don't remember Amalek, but we remember what he did to us. So we, the growth 
and the strength that we derive from Amalek's challenge to us. Amalek's Siddha says, is Gematria Sufik, doubts. Amalek is Kriris, Ashakar Chabaderech, cooling us off, apathy, indifference, throwing doubts, and other things that Amalek represents. So you remember not the actual negative experience, you remember Asher Aslacha, what he did to us, and how we learned and grew from it. So you erase the actual trauma. But the growth that comes out of it, you don't erase. So it's not about putting it under the carpet, anything negative that happens to us. On the contrary, we acknowledge it. And not only that, we even celebrate that the growth that came through it. So the Zohar is Asher Osa, and Mochit Timch is an Amalek itself. The same thing you could say about Haman. When we, when, we, when we make noise and we bang with our feet or whatever other ways that we uh, obliterate the Moche Timcha Zechra Amalek, Haman is, of course, Hagogi is from Amalek. So, one way we express it is by obliterating his name by making noise when his name is read. All the times that it's read is with his full title. So, we're not trying to, keep, to revisit the negative things that happened. Thank God the Gzeda was over and we were, we were miraculously saved. But we remember what Haman did to us, what we learned from it. We learned that we needed to have deeper Ardus, more unity bringing the children out to pray, fasting, and all the things we did as a result that would never have come had Haman not been there. So it's not the Haman that we remember, we remember the growth and the results of what the Haman elicited, the strengths, the deeper strengths of Mesiris Nefesh, as Chirus explains, that the Mesiris Nefesh, that the Jews stood that year to withstand the, the decree that Haman placed upon them. And of course, we remember Mordechai and Esther, so this is a tremendous lesson that when we, when we focus on something that's a positive, when, even a negative thing, we don't focus on the negative. It's like you focus on the growth that you got from that negative experience. Tremendous lesson in healing in every aspect of our lives. Let's just give another example, the Haftarah. I may have mentioned this a number of times. Why do we read the Haftarah? The Haftarah is a selection from the, the Nevim, from, from the prophets, in most cases, that has a similar theme to the Parsha. But we read the Parsha. Why do we need to read something from the Navi, from the Prophet? Now, of course, there's exceptions. The exceptions, the seven weeks, Shiva, the, uh, the three weeks between um, Shivasa Batamas and uh, Tishabav. Then we read from the Nyana Diyem about Tlosa de Purnissa. Then we read Shiva de Nechemta, the seven consolations, all about consolation. Then there's the two weeks of Tshuva, which is the weeks between Roshana through Sukkis. And then there's a few others. There's the four. Uh, there's there is uh, times when it's Machel Chedesh, when Erev Chedesh is Shabbos. We read a special Avteira about the time. But what, why is the Avteira in the first place? The answer is during, during the time of the Romans, they decreed that the Jews were not allowed to learn Teira, the penalty of death. The Jews, smart Jews as they are, smart lawyers, what they did was they came up with a great idea. What is Teira? Teira, in its limited, narrow definition, it's Chumash, Chamisha Chumash Teira, Teira Shabiksav. Of the five books. So that they stopped reading. So they found something in the prophet, which is, they called was not Taylor, that's a Rey Nevim. And that was their loophole that they were able to read during that decree from the Haftarah. But what happened afterwards? When the decree was over, you'd think, okay, Botla Hatam, Botla Siva, Botla Masubav. Once the cause is no longer there, you, you eliminate also the, the effect. So when they could start reading the Pashas again from the Chumash, no re- reason to read the Haftarah. No, Seshul Chanadach says, Allah, no. We continue reading the Avtaira too. But why? Why does it have to remind, it remind us of a bad thing? Because by us, there's no such thing as a negative that doesn't bring growth. You don't go back to square one. 
Every Yerida is Tzayda Chaliyah. Every descent is for a greater growth. So what do we remember? Those that know the reason know it's the Roman decree. But most people, when they come to the shul, they, they, all they hear is another reading of Tzayda. So at the end of the day, the Romans gave us, through their decree, additional reading. Haman gave us an additional Yontif, as did the, the Yavonim in the time of Hanukkah, as did Pari in the time of Pesach. So what we remember is not the Tsar, the, the negative. We commemorate certain aspects of it, but what we remember and what we celebrate and commemorate is the Yontif that they gave us, the additional holiday. So that explains why we, why we focus on the Haman, where a Machetimcha, a Molek, but not Asher Osa, not what we learn, what we've grown, and how we, what it created within us. Okay. Talking about trauma, so here's a question that came in. How to avoid passing on our trauma to our children? There's a topic I've not found on your YouTube channel. How parents who have childhood and early life trauma should proceed to avoid passing trauma to their children. My wife and I are in the middle of this currently, and I'm sure it is a topic that will resonate with your audience. The tragic point of the issue is that most parents, adults, do not understand the subtleties of what traumatizes a child. They may not be consciously aware of their own personal complications resulting from their own early life experiences. They, could, they would not be aware of the personal issues that limit or even poison their worldly interactions, and so they certainly would not be mindful of how their childhood issues affect or foul their attempts at parenting, and how their unresolved trauma blows away a child's ability to develop true self-worth. Would you be able to speak on this during your Wednesday class? Remember, in addition to the Sunday program that I'm doing right now, I also do a Wednesday class. This topic is so important, perhaps it merits a short series. This writer also writes, for starters, please watch the video on the Ainsworth Strange Situation Experiment. It starts off slow, but the content is compelling and worth watching and sends us a link. When parents aren't consistently loving and truly available, it shows up even in very young children. In this video is featured psychologist Everett Waters. You can Google him to learn more about him. Baruch Hashem, we're doing okay. But with older kids who have left the house and younger kids still at home, we're trying our best to fix up what we can. Okay. So thank you for the question. And this is exactly what I always welcome and invite. Any questions that people are dealing with, this is the forum to discuss it. Even though you asked me to discuss it about the Wednesday night class, I'm mentioning it here because of the value to the people. So uh, to say I have already responded to this individual and last week's class, Wednesday night class, was exactly that titled How to Avoid Passing on Our Trauma to Our Children. You can look it up. It's on, our, it's on our site. It's last week's class. And this is something every Wednesday we, I give a class, which you can also sign up for, get email reminders. And if you sign up on the YouTube channel, you'll also get when the, when the video is posted. This is a live class. It's streamed on video, both on YouTube and on Facebook, and partially on Instagram. So this, this was discussed, and therefore I'm not going to discuss it now. I'll refer you again. How to avoid passing on our trauma to our children. Just search for that on our site, and you'll find this topic discussed in over an hour, especially dedicated over an hour class just on this topic. Okay, next question. This next question is relating to marriage, and it goes like this. What are Torah views on getting married? What if person, a person doesn't have parnasa, livelihood? Should he, or, should he or she wait after 30 
Does it depend which community? These are all questions. How does age affect the ability to have children? Do people learn enough about Parnassah and Yeshiva? Chabad dating pool versus other groups. Not mixing. So various a bunch of questions. I'm not going to address all of them because I've talked about this at length. And I will give you right now cross-referencing, especially episodes 124 and, um, and others about the different aspects of, of dating and the details around that. As well as just a few weeks ago, episode 201 about a bocher, uh, what, how is it looked at as a bocher, a student w- working before marriage. So Ashlacha Pratis, Divine Providence would have it. I recently discovered a letter from the Rebbe dated in Tafshin Lamed Zion, 5737, that's 1977. And um, without a name, but it's someone from Roslyn, New York. I'm going to read the letter. And the letter addresses this very directly because Ashlachan Arach, it does say, that the order should be a person should first have a parnasa and then find a wife. So it should be security. And yet we see in our system and many of the Frum systems, you don't find that condition at all. It's actually frowned upon to some extent. So the Rebbe writes, greeting and blessing, this is in reply to your letter in which you write about the matter of parnasa, livelihood again. The thrust of your position is that nowadays considerable preparatory schooling and formal secular education are indispensable in order to get on in business or employment. You also contend that we need Jewish doctors, lawyers, and other professionals, all of which poses a challenge to the primacy of Torah education and early marriage, etc. Although you begin your arguments with a quotation from the Shulchan Aruch, the one I just mentioned, they are advanced primarily from the viewpoint of secular considerations. So I will address myself to this aspect of the problem, that is, from the secular viewpoint. To begin with, you must surely know that statistics show that an overwhelming percentage of college graduates establish themselves economically in fields other than those in which they graduated. You are no doubt also aware that in this country at any rate, it has been the trend for many years, and and more so recently, that economic opportunities have been related less to college degrees than to personal contacts and being fortunate enough to get a push. In other words, it is not so much what you know as who you know. For better or for worse, the fact is that the importance of a college degree has been on the wane in recent years. A further point again from the secular view, is basic to the so-called exact sciences, namely, that the first thing is to know that the facts are, what the, I'm sorry, the first thing is to know what the facts are, and only then can one try to explain them. For no amount of logic can alter the facts. This is the old philosophical rule that opinions follow reality, and not vice versa. In other words, not that reality follows opinions. Hence, in regard to marriage, any sociologist will tell you that precisely in the materialistically oriented society of the USA, most marriages are entered into before the couples have att- has attained, before the couple has attained economic security, and the acquisition of a home comes still later. Now for the problem itself. It is true that the rule of the Shulchan Aruch, which you quote, first establishing oneself in business or profession, then buying a house, then taking a bride, would be the ideal procedure. But it has also been explained that this rule applies only when it is practicable. In earlier times when standards of living were modest, it was possible to establish oneself with a parnosa at a relatively early age. However, in recent generations, if a man were to postpone marriage until he was securely established with a parnosa and has bought a house, it is easy to imagine the consequences. Indeed, there is no need to leave anything to the imagination, nor is there any need to go into painful detail as to the state of morality in those circles where marriage is unduly postponed. Compare it with the high standards of morality and family stability in the Frum circles, 
where early marriage is the rule. In recent years, a further consideration has come into prominence. We Jews are survivors of the Holocaust, and everyone should do everything possible to counteract Hitler's plan of the final solution, which his heirs have not given up. Anything that tends to reduce and decimate our Jewish people, God forbid, either quantitatively or qualitatively through assimilation and the like, plays into the hands of our enemies. Therefore, a Jew sets up a home and family early. Therefore, a Jew who sets up a home and family early on the foundations of the Torah, a binyan adayad in the fullest sense, which is an eternal edifice, deals a blow to Hitler's ears and strengthens our people. Finally, there are further points in favor of early marriage. Parents are generally willing to help out their newlywed children until they become entirely self-sufficient. There are various relief agencies, federal, state, and city, with various helpful programs, as well as job training facilities, trade schools, etc., all designed to make life easier in the contemporary complex society. In summary, from every viewpoint, not least from the viewpoint of a healthy moral society, it is not, it is not in the best interest of young people and the society at large to postpone marriage until they are fully independent economically, as you seem to advocate. You will surely understand why I cannot share your view with blessing. Very blunt letter. Anyone wants to receive this letter or any other things we make reference to, please, in our forum that I mentioned earlier, meaningfullife.com slash mylife, just ask for, but be specific. You're looking for the Rebbe's letter about see, the issue of Parnosa before marriage. And give us your email address. Remember, we have no way to trace you because it's meant to be entirely anonymous. Send us your email address and we'll be able to forward you this letter or any other material you are requesting. Okay. Next question. Next question brings a little smile to my face. It goes like this. What constitutes healthy eating according to the Torah? And here's how one questioner posed it. Is it better to drink fruit juices rather than Coca-Cola? Dried fruits rather than sugar snacks that have no vitamins? I'm not sure why this is being directed to me. Maybe they're hinting something, even though I don't really drink Coca-Cola. But um, uh, this seems to be more directed to a nutritionist. But I guess uh, the My Life Exodus Applied Forum and platform has become quite popular. I see it from the different questions. And, uh, and I really am honored and humbled of the trust that you have vested in us. So I guess all kinds of questions come up. And I'll try to address this one, though it's not my forte necessarily. But from a Exodus and Taylor perspective. So we know... There's no question. You have to be healthy. You have to make sure and protect, preserve your health. The Rambam says, because a good body, a healthy body, is madarke avedis Hashem, as the Rebbe explains. If you're not healthy, you can't serve God in, in peace and in a calm way, in a relaxed way. You're distracted. In addition to the fact that the body itself is God's property. Gave it to us as a gift. So we have to protect it. Like someone gives you something very special, you have to protect and preserve it. And that means that listening to the experts of what is considered healthy form of eating, healthy diet, healthy hygiene, exercise, and so on. When it comes to questions about drinking fruit juices rather than Coca-Cola, dried fruits rather than sugar snacks, I'm not an expert, but I would assume that maybe better than Coca-Cola is fruit juice. But fruit juices, I've also heard, there's a lot of sugar in it, and it's not necessarily the best for you. Water is, of course, one of the best drinks of all. But this, again, I defer to the experts that the Rebbe always says to go to a Refa Mumcha, or a nutritionist, or a doctor, or someone who can advise better. 
So I'm not going to answer specifically, but dried fruits rather than sugar snacks, again, seems to be better because it's natural. But the general, in the context of my life, is applied, as I said, this is not a nutritionist program, but rather one that tries to live up, that we should live up and apply chassidus and teda to our personal lives. And that, of course, includes what we consume. You assume what you consume. And yes, food is a tremendous element of our lives. And that's why chassidus talks about adam. person doesn't live on bread alone, but on the spark of the divine spark. So the food we consume has divine sparks. Therefore, healthy foods clearly have healthier sparks in a way. Or better put, not healthier sparks, because all sparks are healthy, but rather the sparks are not that much trapped and not in any way distorted by the object in which it, in which it is uh, manifests. When we say sparks go into, for example, klipas nego, shalosh klipas atmez, the divine spark is always divine. But it can get trapped to the point like chatich nas it could be a piece like a spark that gets so darkened like in a black hole, so the effects, it can be polluted, at least for a while, and by the darkness in which it goes. So unhealthy food would be in that category. And we have to do everything possible to consume healthy sparks, or I should say sparks that are embedded in healthy foods that make us healthy and don't bring to us infection or disease, or God forbid any things, obesity or other, other diseases that come as a result of, any, of consuming the wrong type of foods. I would also refer you to episodes 24 and 30, 43, Again, 24 and 43, where I talk about food as well. I also recall, I remember, I think the first year of the essay contest was an excellent one of the top essays. Winners was about the Hasidic approach to overeating. And I believe there were other essays on, the, on, a similar, on the topic. So you could also find that on our site, MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. Next question. Next question. person titles it The Concept of Tshuva. But it's a little more loaded than that. Wall of shame forever? If a person has paid his dues for violating others, should he be shamed for the rest of his life? Yeah, it's one of these questions that we always prefer not to have to address, but reality on the ground is one that we must address this. Dear Rabbi Simon Jacobson, I'm always... uh, Always, uh, my red lights always go up when someone writes, Dear Rabbi Simon Jacobs, in the full title. There are different Jewish watch groups out there that expose adults that sexually abused a person or people, and they are then put on a wall of shame. Once the person has done restitution or prison time, should their photo and information be put up on the wall of shame forever? Isn't there a concept of rehabilitation and shuva? Should the person be shamed forever? Can't they start a fresh new beginning? Shouldn't they have a chance and their family have a chance to live a normal life without being shamed? Is there any rabbinic oversight to their process? And are the people credentialed who are working in this field? Okay. I already, because once we already announced the class and this topic, we've already received some emails the few emails I saw were unequivocally also saying, absolutely shame forever. Anyone who's behaved this way doesn't deserve one second of any second chance. So it's, the reason that this is not an easy question to respond to is because it's so emotionally charged. And I want to address that first before I get to the actual question. One of the reasons we have a Torah and the reason we have Chassidus and we have directives that come to us from higher authorities starting from Hashem, 
and Hashem's chosen teachers and scholars and sages starting from Moshe Rabbeinu and then each generation respectively Moshe Kibbal Teda Messina Yisrael Yeshua why do we have that? because left to our own recourse left to our own resources we will not always come up with objective solutions in most cases we won't because we're subjective especially when it comes to emotionally charged issues where one person has violated another one person has hurt another person and in very deep ways and sometimes in irreversible ways it's very, it, the first emotional reaction is that that person deserves the worst after what they've done. Especially if it was deliberate. And especially if it's sustained and ongoing. And we don't have any Rachmanis. And therefore, of course, the knee-jerk reaction would be, yes, it's very sad to hear that you're being shamed, but the very, it's worse what you did. And what, the shame is nothing close to the sin and the crime that you did. And you, we indeed find, even in the Torah, not as an emotional, the is an objective book that says there are situations where capital punishment is, is used, not just as a deterrent, because the person, as way this would put it, has essentially lost their right to live because they killed themselves by killing another person. Or they're a threat to other people. When it comes to this type of abuse, sexual abuse, today we know from experts that it's more than murder, it's ongoing murder. You murder a person once, it's once. Here, a whole life, it could be you're stabbing the person again and again and again. And that's even if you ask for forgiveness. So even if you did tshuva, as we all know, tshuva ben adam lamokim. What about tshuva ben adam lechavere? You cause the person damage, permanent damage sometimes. So what do you do then? So the emotional reaction and inclination we all know is no mercy at all. And yet we still have to ask ourselves the question, is that the right approach? Is that what Taylor would say? Is that what Hashem would say? Is that what Chassidus would say, the Rebbe would say? Obviously, we need to use Tater precedents for this, which is why I, I cite a number of times, when it comes to forgiveness, we have the laws that you're supposed to not, be, just like you're supposed to ask for forgiveness if you hurt someone, the one that was hurt is not supposed to, refra- was not supposed to withhold forgiveness. Not to be an achzid, and you have to forgive, except two exceptions. The Altar Rebbe brings in Hilchus Erev Yemakipurim, the laws of Mechila. Forgiveness. If you feel the person has not yet been contrite enough, has not yet been broken, has not done tshuva enough, so you have a right to withhold forgiveness, or if you, by giving forgiveness, you yourself will be hurt. You hear that? You say, one second. So it's not just oh, a blanket thing. A person's asked for forgiveness, and they're sincere. The Torah itself is giving exceptions. Why? Because you being hurt, by a person, even if they did tshuva, but you're being hurt by them, or maybe they didn't do it sincerely. So we see that it's not just a black and white. We just have Rahmanis and that's that. We see in Taylor, absolutely, there are punishments that are, as I said, capital and severe. Not because we want to punish someone, but because a person, when you behave in such a way, you've punished yourself. Cause and effect. We'll talk about that later in the program at the end of the, the, this question. So the Taylor approach to this has to be the following. Every person can do tshuva. A person who's hurt another person can do tshuva. That tshuva must include, you can't just do tshuva with God, you have to address the person that you hurt. They have to accept what you're saying. They have to feel that you're sincere and you have to truly be sincere. I'm always suspicious when I get a question like this because someone may be on the wall of shame, deservedly so, and they just want, they want to get it off the, they want to get it off the hook and they say, I do tshuva. Well, how long do I have to be punished? Why did my family have to be punished? I understand. 
But if it's coming from a place like that, that's also quite a negei bedover. That's why I'm being very careful in responding to this because I don't want this to be used by somebody saying, you know what, here, Rabbi Jacobson said, you have to have Rachmanus. Not that I'm an authority, but that I'm citing the different sources. So the first thing we need to do is, is a sincere tshuva. And unfortunately, when it comes to this particular crime, statistics show that most people do not admit it. Alcoholism people admit. Murder people admit. Theft people admit. This crime, for whatever reason, not going into analyzing it, is not easily, people don't admit it. They may admit it if they have no choice in court, so they'll plead guilty, but in their hearts they don't admit it. So if they've really done tshuva. Now, we don't know what's going on Belev, we don't know, you, you, we don't know the, heart, the heart of what's going on in another person's heart. We only judge by what we see. But still, when you want to look at something of this nature, you have to look at what's real tshuva done. Secondly, were amends made to the people that were hurt. Can we forgive, for example, the Nazis after what they did? Who are we to forgive? The people that were killed are not here. Their families have been hurt. Can they... So you'll say, okay, whatever, these are not Nazis, these are Jews. But it's the same thing. A crime is a crime. And there were kapos, and there were Jewish Nazis. Or other Jewish, things that they did to other Jews. So it's not about a Jew thing, it's about the crime. So if someone can say and establish that they've truly done tshuva, and they made the amends that a person is ready to forgive them that's been hurt by them, which I tell you right now is, is not going to be that common, then perhaps if the person who has been hurt says, I stand up and say, I would like that person not to be shamed further, maybe, 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 maybe. Would I advise a person like that to say that? You have to bend over backwards to say, is it, are you just doing it to be comfortable? Or guilty? Or you're weak? Or is it coming from strength? Is it, coming, is it, is it healthy for you to overlook and, over, and, and uh, ignore what happened? Or even if you've grown from it? So this is a very complicated question to answer, and I'm not going to clearly answer it black and white. Because yes, posed that way, does anyone deserve to be shamed forever? No, I would say no one deserves to be shamed forever, but no one deserves to be hurt forever either. So perhaps that is the solution. Now, is there collateral damage? Why should a family have to suffer? Why should others, by extension, are they not guilty by, uh, by association? But, you know, something in life, that's sometimes what people do. They destroy their own family with their behavior. And maybe people should take that into account as a deterrent. The bottom line is the damage done, the injury, the wounds done by sexual abuse are very deep. That's what people have to come to terms with. Do not minimize it. The minimizing of it is a crime. If you don't minimize it and we face up what exactly it is and its effects, then maybe healing can begin. But unfortunately... I find that most people minimize, ignore, avoid, or try to get away with it. So yes, some people have sat in prison. They come out of prison. So today in the United States, there's, uh, there's, they need to report where they live, and it's all public knowledge. Sex offenders uh, are, are reported, and you can know exactly, you go online, where they live. Some people say that's very harsh. But the question is whether there's still a threat. If there's still a threat, should the families that live near them should not know that there may be a threat there? So who determines if there's a threat? That's why it's so complicated, because it's a sin that does not go away so easily. And it's sad, but there are things like that that are a constant threat, and we have the din of a redif in Teira. A redif is somebody running with a knife in his hand. There you don't have the questions of Rahmanis. You do whatever it takes to make sure the person doesn't hurt anybody. 
So that's why this issue is a very complicated one. Now, I'm not here, I don't represent any wall of shame or any of the organizations that do this. I'm not here to tell you what their criteria, not criteria. I'm addressing the issue at its merit. So my answer is everybody can do tshuva 100%. But this issue, whether you will have this, the sign of Cain, the sign of Cain on your forehead the rest of one's life, sometimes that's what happens when something's like that. Is it fair? Not, life is not fair, but the crime was not fair. The crime is worse than the shame, I would say. So I don't say anyone deserves it, and we, don't, and we cry over it. We're not celebrating. We're not happy. But we have to take into account all the factors here, not just the person who did the crime, but also the people who were hurt, because they are ultimately the real victims. For the criminal to start crying, crying that he's the victim or she's the victim because they're on the whole wall of shame, to me that's somewhat of a distortion. And that's not where you begin. You begin by first correcting the, the wrongs, and then you work your way back. And hopefully we can come to a day where we could have forgiveness, where we could heal, and we could, people who have that shame, could perhaps be redeemed even with that. I'm not here to do the redeeming. I'm not here to do the accusing. I'm just trying to present it in a tailor balanced way. Now, I know this may not satisfy everybody. People want to have either a black and white yes or a black and white no, but that's my response. If you feel you have a different answer, maybe you should start your own program and offer it, or by all means, send it in as a comment, and I will read any answer that comes, any comment that comes my way, unless, unless I find it completely inappropriate or offensive. But feel free to comment on this. I am by no means giving a, a final statement. I don't have a, a, a smoking gun answer from the Rebbe or from any of the Rabbeim that I could say, this is it. I know that you have to always look. I mean, people come to me, to be honest, that are predators and that have hurt others, and they're trying to find a way how to get, how to get beyond it. So my advice to them is I don't throw them out. I speak to them. I try to see how sincere they are. And then I say to them, if you're really sincere, go to rehab. Go do this. Go do that. There are things to do. Many don't go. They really want me to help them um, redeem themselves, to help them rehabilitate themselves in the eyes of the public. But the, the way to do it is actually heal. Go to rehab and do what you have to do. So I speak to people like that. And every, anyone who comes your way, you obviously have to, have to be compassionate in helping them try to grow. But that doesn't mean you can just give a license and say, you know what, since the person is showing sincerity or is trying, that's why everything is like unkidori and everything is like back to square one. No, that's not the case. You can help someone who's done a crime like that. That doesn't mean that you can just forget or forgive, uh, especially on behalf of others. So I think that's the balanced way to approach this from a tater way, besides the emotional reaction that we all have, but to balance it and to realize it's not just an emotional thing, it's also what is good for the public, what is good for the individuals, meaning also those that have been hurt. And you know, unfortunately, a situation that somebody actually so-called was in rehab, more than one situation, I'm not going to start um, elaborating all the nightmares, and yes, and was so-called, didn't touch anyone and did not hurt anyone for years. But everybody so-called let their guard down. And what happened? Unfortunately, it started again. So who's going to tell the parents of this new person, child that was abused? You know what? We, we respected his tshuva. And therefore, we felt he could be taken off from a wall of shame. Or he could not be stigmatized because he did tshuva. Who's going to take responsibility to tell that to the parents? So you understand what we, why we have to weigh so many different angles and so on. Have I heard stories of people completely rehabbing? Yes, I have. And I'm sure there's some people who have absolutely done amends and have stopped. But it's not for me and you to decide that. That has to be determined in a proper way to make sure it's true. The victims have to be, the survivors have to be involved. 
as I described earlier in detail. Okay. I want to just refer you on this topic to episodes 55 and 56, 136, 147, and episode 8, where I discuss grudges and anger for unforgivable acts. Because there's also the element of people carrying, because what I was talking about was the, for, the, for the abuser. The people who are survivors, whether they should continue carrying grudges, it's a separate thing. Because like he says in Tagaras HaKedish, Allah Nizik Fa Nizik Min HaShemayim, even though the person who did it is going to be punished for Reib Chirose. So this doesn't mean, Al-Nizik Nizik means you have to figure out your own way of healing that's independent of the person that abused you. But that's a different topic and I don't want to go into that. That's why I'm referring you to episode 8. We're going to do several follow-ups. Then we'll do the Chassidus question. Yes. Okay. There's several follow-ups. A bunch of follow-ups. And I'll try to do as many as I can. They said the questions keep coming. They're accumulating faster and faster. And I don't just know. I'm trying to catch up. But it is what it is. And there's a lot, a lot of follow-up to particular topics. I'm sure the one I just addressed will have plenty of follow-up as well. So here's a follow-up to the topic I've already addressed last week and two weeks ago. Parental abuse. Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for addressing parental abuse. My mother was and still is a tremendously meticulous and put-together homemaker, but verbally, emotionally, and sometimes physically abusive. My father's an absolute gem, but during my childhood, mostly at work, but during my childhood, he was mostly at work. When I was dating, I told my father that if being married meant being married to someone like my mother, I would rather remain single. Indeed, I married someone very different from my mother, someone who sadly is very dysfunctional, and worse, a topic which I won't get into now. Baruch Hashem, I have remarried very happily. I would call out to all mothers to be careful to speak to your children with derecheretz, with kindness and in their best interest. If and when you are de- dealing with challenging personal issues, please don't take it out on your children. And never hit your children. It leaves permanent scars. Okay. As I said, I read the comments as they come in. Another topic, that was a topic in 201 and in 202, I believe. Let me show, yeah, 201. This is from last week's episode. We spoke about what would the Rebbe say about the recent school shootings, episode 202. So I have here a few comments. Rabbi, it just happens to be that a majority of these school shootings have been perpetrated by mentally deranged people, which you made note of in the beginning of this week's segment. So while teaching about God, and the sanctity of life and the importance of prayer or a moment of silence are all great ideas, which the Rebbe certainly did push for. Certainly, that would not have avoided these outcomes with many of the perpetrators perhaps, perpetrators perhaps detached from real-life consequences of their actions. Okay, I have no comment on that, except what you're saying. Still, the sanctity of life, you would add that, it may also be the deciding factor, even for a person who may be a little unstable, whether they will go all the way. Because take away no sanctity of life and instability is obviously much more volatile than if you only have one of the two. Another person writes, Yesterday, Bez Adar was the yardside of Mrs. Pesha Lapine Hashem Yinkam Doma. This is what the Rebbe said after her shiva. As for God holding pressures the self-sacrifice of a Jew, it's enough that Jews are in exile over 1900 years. May God spare us from all further sacrifices and immediately send the redemption and the resurrection at which time she and her children will be joyfully reunited. We are still waiting. Ad Masai. Okay. Another person writes, children need more siblings. The Rebbe encouraged families to welcome multiple children. Rabbi Jacobson mentions the loner. 
I wonder if children growing up with siblings have a less tendency to be loners. Rabbi Jacobson mentions responsibility. It is likely that a child with siblings will grow up with responsibilities from early childhood. It goes without saying that taking God out of the schools has had a negative impact. And the Rebbe's plea for a campaign for a moment of silence echoes in an empty space left to be filled. But the Rebbe also spoke about families having more children. Children growing up with siblings are more likely to have respect for the sanctity of life, to develop responsibility, and to adapt to society with good will. Okay. I spoke much about moment of silence, which is why many people are referring to it. Another, Moshe. Before the Rebbe agreed to a moment of silence, the Rebbe strongly advocated prayer in the schools. He spoke sikhs about this, even recommending a constitutional amendment for it. For it. The Rebbe quoted that the constitution was written for the people and by the people. That is true, but the Rebbe then did change the position because of the laws of the government separation, church and state. Instead of a spoken prayer, it should be this moment of silence. Okay. Someone else responds to that. I didn't know the Rebbe had asked for prayer. It makes so much sense. Another writer writes about this topic. I heard some people say that part of the problem is God not, is not allowed in the American public schools. Some people are wrong on all counts. Their premise is wrong. Their reasoning is wrong. Their conclusion is wrong. Other than that, it sounds like there's some people to whom Trump listens. Okay, well, I absolutely disagree with you, with all due respect. Number two, this person writes, oh, look, a smug leftist. Premise. No, 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 sorry. This is someone responding to this guy or woman. Oh, look, a smug leftist. Premise, reasoning, conclusion, all wrong. And Trump is at fault. I wrote this comment, this person writes, because I'm very smart and very amused, definitely an observer and not one of you. Okay, I'm not really sure where this is coming from. I'm just reading. We have many different followers and listeners, so there's some of the listeners. Another topic that I'm following up on is about, I spoke about reading secular books last week, so someone writes in episode 202, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson, words cannot express the meaning and worth of your great work. I hope more people, especially Mashpim in yeshivas, learn from your approach to Chassidus and its understanding of every situation life may bring. Number one, you mentioned regarding reading secular literature, addressing life's challenges that obviously better not to, and in exchange, delve deeper to search for answers in Chassidus, although the language might be harder. However, if a person does read these books, then he might as well use it to help and can sometimes find ideas from Chassidus in them, but they must be sifted. The feeling I got was that it's not the biggest Aveda. I think that in Tanya, he's talking about chapter 8, when the Alter Rebbe mentions the study of secular books, he says that it is metame, chabad It pollutes the chabad, the mind of the divine soul. To me that sounds much more severe than the way you made it sound. I'd like to refer you also to the Shuli Hagilian in the Maimur of Shafti B'Shalom in Eter. Shuli Hagilian means on the bottom of the page of the Maimur in Eter, Tafreshayim from the Rebbe Rashab. Which states clearly that the sifting of secular books is not for average people and only for tzaddik. Thank you for the comment. It's absolutely correct. But it's correct what you're saying that Alter Rebbe says that. And I spoke both sides of it because I said people may do things anyway. They're not going to ask questions in halacha or teira. And then there's the kadem the Rambam, the Alter Rebbe speaks about there, the Rambam and the Ramban. So I want to refer you to episodes 24 through 27. Four episodes, 24, 25, 26, 27, I dedicated, I addressed this at length. 45, 49, 90, 153, all about secular education and the different angles about it. 
And finally, especially episode 169, where I discussed this Tadnia chapter 8, the different aspects to that as well. So that would be my response to this, and uh, thank you for that comment. Here we go. Prayer. We spoke about prayer in epi- a few weeks ago in episode 201. You spoke about the different parts of tefillah. One, dveikus aveda, which means serving God and connecting with godliness. And two, bashkoshes tzrachov, asking for personal needs. You mentioned that you don't recall offhand the place of Chizis, which explains the connection between the two. If I am not mistaken, in Chelik Yutes Lekuti Sichas in the Sicha for Vav Tishrei, the Rebbe speaks about this, and in Chelik Chav Gimel, page 217, the Rebbe explains this at length. He has the Sicha of Rev Regam Tzmeim, where he talks about the Tfil of Chana. Yes, he does speak about it, asking for requests. Personal requests is really what the Neshama is looking for. But I don't know if that's a Vedas Hatfil that we usually talk about, but thank you for that. And keep up the good work. Okay. Another, another uh, follow-up is lying, in episode 85. Rabbi Jacobson, I saw the recommendations of the Rebbe in a video interview and about how, that, how can that man fight with his tendency to lie. Okay. I looked for, that indications that, I looked for the indications of that on the internet and asked several rabbis, Chabad rabbis, and cannot find it. Could you help and give me that address? I want to overcome that tendency and my way of being. Don't sustain... I don't, can't sustain when I make a decision, cannot say no and maintain it, live with lots of doubts, only by one I need, one by one I need to refine myself. Excuse, for, excuse me for my limitations on, in English, I hope you can understand me for, for clarification, you can please email me. Thanks a lot, with gratitude. So I would simply tell you that uh, if you go and search on our site for the word lying, or deception, or duplicity, you'll find plenty of uh, resources to answer your question. And this talk, I'm talking about lying, I, I, for some reason, did not mark what episode, but I will next week, where I talk about this topic in previous shows. I talked about how to deal with the tendency to lie. Okay. Actually, it's episode 85. What am I saying? In episode 85, that's exactly what I talk about. So please go there, and you'll find more comments. Here's a general comment. Someone's asking for Cliff Notes version of these programs. Nice videos, I just don't have an hour, and sometimes an hour and 15 minutes. Someone else responds, I can relate. What I do is firstly break up the video into topics by times, listen for a few seconds, catch the topic, skip five minutes. If it's still the same topic, skip another five. If it changes, I go back a bit and see where the new topic started. This doesn't take more than a minute or two. Then I go to the topics I want to listen to, hear the beginning, the question, skim through some of the explanation, and listen to the conclusion. Depending on how much depth I want to hear from each topic and how many I want to listen to, 10-15 minutes is sufficient. About Cliff's notes, whoever would write up a summary of essential points would be my angel. Okay, interesting. Look, I, I try to do my best. This is an hour, sometimes hour 15 program. And yes, but I do not focus on one topic for an hour and 15 minutes. I speak about topics, five minutes, 10 minutes, some 15 minutes. And uh, obviously everybody has to take their, uh, customize it to your needs. I mentioned again that there's timestamps. You don't have to go do all this process. You can find the timestamps by topic. But I wanted to read it just in case other people want to weigh in on this. Let's now go to the Chassidus question of the week. This is following up a topic we've been talking about, the goodness of God in the last weeks. So someone writes, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you very much for addressing the God is good topic. That was in 202. 
episode 202 and episode 201. I wanted to ask a related question. When talking about Hashem, a friend of mine tends to speak about Him in a very daunting and scary way, saying things like, because of one's actions there are repercussions, and one might burn in hell for the negative that one does, etc. I don't claim to know exactly how Hashem relates to us. However, following the ways of Chassidus, the Rebbe and the Mashpia, I get a much more beautiful description as to who Hashem is, quote-unquote. I very much value the way you clarify. I very much value the way you clarify certain misconceptions and perceptions, and wanted to know if you could address the subject. How and what would be the chesidus? Would be the way chesidus lends to view Hashem. Lahavdil. No, how chesidus lends to view Hashem, to view lahavdil hell and its role in Yiddishkeit and other such topics. A related question that also came in is Mida connected. Mida, dear Rabbi Jacobson, how would you? How would one view midah connected midah? That's tit for tat. Through a chassidic lens. When I do something wrong, should I expect Hashem to punish me? Is it a tit for tat relationship with Hashem? Okay. So related question, let me, I, I, I will refer you to episodes 6, 73, and 104, where I spoke about this, as well as episode 92, where the chassidic question, is there anthropomorphism in atzmos? Can you, can you attribute to atzmos, to alakuz, to the Eberstad, these human type of tendencies? The answer is absolutely no. The way we use them is a Shema Mushal, or it's called the Tehid speaks in the language of man. So we, we say God gets angry. It doesn't mean angry like we get angry, out of control or uh, upset. And the Chassidus talks at length that there's no Shinuim. So what does anger mean? Anger is a state of being of, let's say, divine detachment. Divine Simcha is a divine attachment. So what's really the heart of healthy anger, healthy joy? It's connected, less connected. And all these perceptions, all these negative words that many people associate, and this is a very big topic, many people knee-jerk reaction to things called religious, God, Torah, Judaism, are words, all negative words, guilt, anger, punishment, retribution. So it gives you, leaves you a taste of nothing positive about it. Chassidus comes and explains that there's an Hashemet Tater. So all these negative words are really our own misconception. Let's start with the idea of Schad and Einish, reward and punishment. Is it in truth? God, why does God want to punish us? Why would He want to punish us? We're not, we're not even on the same level. And most people think of it like a principle in heaven, principle of the school, coming to punish. So the Shalok explains, and Chassidus cites, that reward and punishment, there's two opinions. There's an opinion that it's Gula, but there's an opinion that, it's, that it is Sibu Masubav, cause and effect. When you put your hand in fire, is that a punishment? Is the fire punishing your hand? No. It's the nature of the world that when you put your hand in fire, fire burns. The Torah which create, which, with which God created the world, it's a blueprint for existence, tells us when, we behave this, when you behave this way, you are sustaining and nurturing and, and, um, and, and, uh, and nourishing yourself. When you behave and think, do that are inappropriate, you're burning yourself. The Torah is not a punishment. God is saying, do this, I'm going to punish you. You are punished because you are created. We are like a machine created by a cosmic engineer. And the operator's manual says, when you use the machine like this, the machine works, hums along beautifully. You do the wrong thing, the machine will get damaged. You pour liquid inside of a, a keyboard, it's going to get damaged. It's not a punishment. It's the rules of existence. The Tate is teaching us to align ourselves to be the healthiest possible human being. 
When Mashiach comes, that's what will be the case. That's why there will be the eradication of disease and illness and infection and death ultimately. When a person does the wrong thing, it causes, it actually causes like toxins that become like a spiritual bacteria and infection that hurts you. So when you're breathing oxygen, which is compared to Tata, breathing oxygen like, like a, a water, we need water to sustain us. If you don't drink the water, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be thirsty and you can die from thirst. So these are all examples that we're dealing with a cosmic order that's about cause and effect much more than the word punishment. I wouldn't use the word punishment. I always cause and effect. There are consequences. Like with the fire that I described. Or if you put your hand in good things, it'll make your hand healthier. The same thing is with all the other words. This anger, this guilt, this, uh, the, all the negative aspects. Neurosis, fear. Fear is a big one. Fear, is it like fear when you're walking down a dark street and trembling because a thief may come, a mugger may come behind you? Is that what the fear of God is supposed to be? No. Fear of God is awe of God. In awe of God, there's a yiru'ilah, yiru'tata, there's a subtle awe, there's a more, more, more practical one where you fear, let's say, you're afraid of facing God because accountability. But it's not a fear, a negative fear that causes you to crouch and causes you to become demoralized. Like he says in Tanya, if you feel sad about something, but if you feel depressed, that's not appropriate. So all these negative terms that we use in English that have become associated with religion is a misuse, often by rabbis and teachers who are misusing the words, and definitely the concepts. We have to look at it as all as being positive, and even when there's a negative element, it's a negative element in the so-called, there's a distance, like we did something, so there's an anger, there's a distance. It's like when you say God turns his face and shows us the back. That I mentioned before with Esther. These are concealments in order for us to overcome the concealment. So Golis is considered, yes, in a way, it's like a husband that left his wife. Why? Because the Churm Beis was Sinas people hated each other. And how could God rest among us? Like, how could a father be at peace when his children are fighting with each other? So the Shechina got concealed. Just like after Chetet Zadas, we're told it goes from. The key, from Aretz to the Ki Harishan. And then the next generation, it was concealed even more. So the Beis is no longer physically here. But when we increase in Avis Yisrael, and when we connect with each other, and we do what we're supposed to be doing, we can bring back the Beis So these are all examples of not a punishment, or guilt, or, uh, or fear. It means that the healthiest human being is the one that is closest to God. That one, I would say, Re- rephrasing that, aligning your being, your eser keches anefesh, like he says in Tain, nishtal shlomahem, which evolved from the ten spheres. When we align our chokhmah to Hashem's chokhmah by learning, chokhmah binadaz by learning teda, instead of using the mind for narishkeit nor for just material things. When you align chesed gvura teferes, your emotions, and mahu chanon afatachanon, just as God is compassionate, so are you. Just as God is a ch- but does chesed, we do chesed. We align our faculties and our resources and our beings to the divine will. We become then b'tselem elikim, which we were, we were created and we reveal that divine image in which we were created and we become a channel of those divine forces. That makes us the healthiest possible person. When you give tzedakah, it's not just you're helping the needy. It's not just the right thing to do. When you're giving tzedakah, you're massaging and exercising the chesed in your nefesh, in your soul. And the same thing with every mitzvah, as the Sefer Chredim explains, corresponds to different organs and different limbs and so on. You become a healthier person. Ramach mitzvah sesa keneged ramach evarim. 
The 248 positive mitzvahs correspond to the 248 limbs. The 365 negative mitzvahs correspond to the 365 gidim, sinews or, or nerves, or uh, how, whatever, however one translates it. And the point is that when you do a mitzvah, you actually become a healthier person. When you don't, God forbid, b'chata b'chaim, so you become more alive. Atam advekim Hashem lekechem chaim kul You connected life. When you separate yourself from the source of life, what happens? You suffocate yourself, God forbid. You asphyxiate, get asphyxiated. You're lacking, you're thirsty, you're hungry, to the point where it could be very destructive. That's how we have to see all these, and, and, re, and all the words have to be completely eliminated, in my opinion, and retranslated in a way that explains it in this type of con- um, relationship. So I hope I did justice to that. We could always talk about it some more. I have some interesting stories I would tell about it, but time is limited. So... It's a tremendous point because a key thing I could tell you from communicating and my speaking and lecturing, I could tell you the greatest challenge is not to convey an idea, but to dispel myths and stereotypes that people have about God and religion. People think God is this man sitting on a throne in heaven with like a white long beard waiting to strike us with, mis- with, with, with lightning when we misbehave. These type of juvenile and nursery school uh, interpretations of God. As the Baditshva said, the God you don't believe in he said to a self-proclaimed atheist, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. The same thing, the hell you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Since you mentioned hell, I should just add, hell is the same idea. Hell is, what is that? Burning, a physical burning. Hell is a place that's cleansing. That when you have, let's say, a blemish, or you have something that you can't just get away, you need to sometimes burn and, and cut in, create surgery to get it out. Surgery is painful. You have to get a splinter out. So that again has to be seen as something when we have these type of things, type of negative things, hell and some being actually a healing force, but sometimes healing is painful. The Kotzke Rebbe says that hell is heaven for those that don't know they're in heaven. So that's another way of looking at it. It's like a person who doesn't know where they are, so they're like lost. So all these concepts and ideas can all be explained in a very beautiful, eloquent way. Even, some, even the negative things can also be explained in that fashion. Okay. I want to conclude with what I began, that please remember that My Life Exodus Applied is a community-sponsored initiative. We really depend on your sponsorships and donations to make it possible. It's really, we put a lot of work into it. Please reciprocate any way you can. To go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorships. And um, sponsorship, I should say. And with that, let me conclude by wishing everybody a very Frelichen Purim and Frelichen Shushen Purim. A, um, that we should all together always celebrate in the Eifin of Adela Yada, Lamaila for Kolakbolas from all limitations. And we should be blessed only with Simchas, revealed Simchas, till the real Simcha of Simchas Elam al Reshem and the Gula Amitis Vashlema. This has been My Life Chsidis Applied, episode 203. Every week's 8 to 9 p- Sundays, 8 to 9 p.m. Have a very blessed and Freilich Vach and a Freilich Purim.